Hello, and welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business and economics. I'm Taylor Scollin. And I'm Sarah Bartnika. So Sarah, uh, before we started recording, you were sharing some exciting news about your interactions with the healthcare system lately. Do you want to share that with our, our audience as well? Well, I don't know how I feel about sharing the news because within the current context of what's happening in healthcare right now, it feels like a little bit of a brag, but I, I am quite pleased to be able to share that after six years of living in Toronto and desperately trying to get paired up with a family doctor in Toronto, I have been successful. So that's that's very exciting. Congratulations. We're, everyone is very happy for you. I'm sure it's not like I've been trying to get one for you know, 12 years and have been totally unsuccessful. Uh, but that's still, that, that is good to, that is good to hear. I think it, it's indicative of though that it took six years for you to manage that of some larger problems in our healthcare system these days. Yes. And I was starting to feel incredibly discouraged because I had so gotten used to the experience of going into a walk-in clinic and asking you know, whatever receptionist was working there, whether they could put me on some sort of list, a wait list to, you know, see a family doctor or, you know, get referred to a family doctor. And at this point, they just laugh. And, you know, that's totally. all that they can really do. So um, after going through that experience, what seemed to be, you know, countless times, I, it, it was a nice su- surprise. Yeah. And I mean, anyone who's interacted with our healthcare system in, you know, the last two or three years has really noticed that has a lot of problems in a lot of different places. Like if you've been to an ER, you've likely waited for a long time, much longer than you probably would have in the past. If you're on a waiting list for a surgery, you're waiting much longer than you were in the past. And just getting a family doctor in a lot of places in this country is uh, virtually impossible. So, uh, you know, healthcare is part of our economy. Sometimes we don't think about it that way, but it is part of our economy. It's part of a lot of the same labor markets and subject to a lot of the same economic forces as other parts of our economy. So I thought it'd be good to to dig into this. And we really do have a, a great guest to break down for us what's going on in Canada's healthcare system right now, because he is working on the front lines, uh, as they say, of the healthcare system and is seeing kind of firsthand every day what's happening. Dr. Saad Ahmed is a family physician based out of Vancouver where he works in the ICU at Vancouver General Hospital. He's a lecturer at the U of T's Department of Family and Community Medicine and on the board for Canadian Doctors for Medicare. He's also a co-founder of Stand Up for Health, a social enterprise building experiential training workshops for healthcare workers. Dr. Saad Ahmed, thank you for joining us on Free Lunch by the Peak. It's a pleasure to be here. So just to kick us off, I think, you know, we've all interacted with the healthcare system in one way or another. But at least for myself, I don't really understand how the system works in any great detail. So but I think before we start talking about the, the problems that many of us are noticing in the system, can you just give us an overview of the actual mechanics of how Canada's healthcare system functions, who's paying for it, how do resources get allocated? Just give us a, a bird's eye view of that. Absolutely. Um, so in Canada, we have what's called a single payer system. 
And so oftentimes we interchangeably use that word with Medicare, or Canadian Medicare. And in essence, what it means is that there is only one insurance system for what's considered like necessary healthcare. And the government is that insurance system. And then all the reimbursements for, let's say you get a surgery done or you get an MRI done, or you just go visit your local family doctor, all that is managed by the government insurance system. So these insurance systems are provincial. So for example, in Ontario, we hear of OHIP, the Ontario Health Insurance Plan. And that's why it's called OHIP because it's administered by the province. Same thing in British Columbia, where I'm currently residing nowadays. Um, you know, we have MSP, so Medical Services Plan. And so, what that does, in essence, is you know, we've heard about the United States, we've heard about some European countries. They have multiple insurance systems, and sometimes you're like Obamacare, forced to buy into one of the many insurance systems that exist. Um, a lot of us have supplemental insurance in Canada, and we'll get into get into details about why that's the case. Um, for things like drugs and dental care. But um, in in essence, what we've done in Canada is said there's only one insurance system, and that's the government insurance system. It's single payer, and our taxes and other kind of contributions will fund that insurance system. And so what that allows you to do is the government essentially sets the prices for what they will pay for medical services that they've deemed to be necessary. And... Um, so as I said, the example of the surgery or the MRI or the family doctor's visit, that's all kind of then paid out. Now, it's uh, crucial because I know there's going to be, we're going to touch on, and there's been a lot of controversy about privatization. Um, in Canada, we actually do have private provision of health services. And so I think when, when this discussion happens, we have to have, have a lot of nuance and subtlety because we have private generally non-profit provision of essential health services. Um, and and so hospitals in throughout Canada, I think almost universally, except for a couple examples in Ontario, um, where there are some older private hospitals that were grandfathered in after Canadian Medicare was passed, um, they're all non-profit. So almost all of our hospitals are, are private, but they are non-profit entities. Um, that are then uh, generally paid by the government um, for anyone who's covered under OHIP, right? So, so that's that's very important to to clarify. Um, now, family doctors, this is where it gets quite complex because, generally speaking, in the old school model, was what we call fee for service, and that's you'll hear that word a fair bit as well in in the discourse on health policy. So, fee for service is that let's say I, as a family doctor, see someone in my clinic, I adjust some of their hypertension medicines. Um, it's a 10-minute visit. I'm then paid by the government for that fee. Like I'm given a fee for that specific service. And um, that worked well for you know the 50s and 60s and 70s when we didn't really have a lot of complexity in our system. And And, and I mean that by people's health wasn't necessarily as complex. We weren't doing as many things like, you know, the stories that I hear from some folks about like what we used to do for heart attacks, like you just give them maybe some aspirin and then hope they didn't die. Right. Like that's, that's literally what we were doing. So sure. 
back in the day, we, we'd have doctors maybe set up their own local clinic and they'd be running a small business and whatever the government would reimburse them for each visit, then you'd use those funds to hire a secretary, maybe have a computer system set up and, and essentially run your own little local clinic, right? It's a small business. Um, and, and so generally speaking, um, we do still have that model, particularly in BC, that is the dominant model. It's called fee-for-service. And we can get into some of the complexity about reforms that have happened since because there has been a huge push to try to reform that system. As, as I'm sure, I don't know if you guys have ever been to a family doctor's office in the past where they had like a sign saying one issue per visit. Yeah. Yes. Right. So, so that's the reason. The reason is because they have to maximize throughput because they're being paid for, per visit. There are all sorts of billing codes and stuff like that that you could maybe try to use for someone who needs a lot more attention. But generally speaking, when you're in a fee-for-service model, you are um, incentivized to maximize throughput. And, and that doesn't necessarily make sense, as I was saying, in the current era of you know, the boomers retiring, lots of complex issues, people having chronic conditions, living longer. Um, you know, it's, there's a lot more management and, and time that's required. And so uh, there has been a push to a certain kind of payment reform called capitation. Um, now, all of this payment reform and all this stuff is kind of happening in actually the way that we've structured payments to doctors in Canada. So this is the other important thing to, to recognize is the vast majority of physicians in Canada are actually not salaried employees of hospitals or the government. It's very different from the NHS where you are actually a salaried employee or funded by some kind of stipend or something like that. The NHS right? being the, the British system? Exactly, the national health system in, in, the, in the UK. And so... In Canada, we're actually contractors. So almost universally across across the country, I mean, there are some doctors who are um, employees of either, you know, public health system or the government of Canada or, or even hospitals have started hiring some doctors directly. Um, but generally speaking, you are a contractor. You're not paid a pension. Um, it neatly exempts you from labor laws, which is always good to, you know, for those 26-hour call shifts. Um, and... So if you actually look at the class of people who are exempt from the, I think it's the Canadian Labor Code, you'll see there's like pilots and physicians and, and a few other folks and, on that list. Um, so that that's kind of, you know, to, to reiterate, we have a single-payer system, government insurance, that pays um, all the various service providers um, a fixed rate that's determined centrally by the government. Um Doctors are contractors, but many other folks in the system are not. So you have nurses, you have occupational therapists, all the allied health professionals, and they are the um, the, the paid employees and, and staff in those hospitals. So one quick follow up on that with yeah. regards to hospitals: do they are they also operating on some sort of fee for service model? How does the funding get allocated to them? So there, that's also a, a very long discussion, but generally speaking, hospitals get a global budget that the ministry will determine based off population, demographics, use, 
Um, and so th- this is why, for example, like we, we meticulously track diagnoses and, um, and the numbers of people showing up to emergency departments and being admitted and discharged through, through our regional hospitals, because that information is fed to the ministry, which then will get a general sense of how much money to allocate. Now, they can make all sorts of fiscal maneuvers. Um, and that did happen for a period of about a decade in Ontario, where the global budgets for hospitals were effectively frozen, which effectively means that, you know, based on inflation of, you know, a couple of percent per year, they, they were actually having decreases year after year. There was some funding reforms done very briefly during that period of time where hospitals would be paid by case. So this is also another innovation in financing where in the U.S. they were doing what's called bundling. So let's say you're admitted with a pneumonia. Um, you show up to your emergency department. They're like, oh, geez, Taylor, you have a really bad pneumonia. And we think you need to go into the hospital because you need some IV antibiotics and you're requiring some oxygen. Um, and then you're admitted. And then, you know, after the emergency doctor, you see the inpatient doctor. And then a few days later, you're back to your regular old self. Um, and then they discharge you and then you follow up with your family doctor. So that whole emerge to discharge, there was a reform they did for a few conditions where you would actually just give a set amount to the hospital based off a whole bunch of like health policy and sort of, you know, statistical analysis of what that cost should be. So that budget for hospitals, that's allocated by the province and then the funding for the province, that's a combination of provincial taxes, levies, along with federal funding. Is that how this is all sort of flowing? Exactly. So definitely, the I think the provinces uh, bear the lion's share of, of the funding. Um, the actual agreement, or I guess the informal sense after Medicare was passed, was that the government would contribute up to 50%. Of the of the costs of healthcare in the provinces through the Canada Health Transfer, that has never been the case, and um, certainly it's been it's they've, there's been periods of time where it's increased, um, but I know that there's currently a lot of negotiations um, happening to try to get that increased after um, after COVID, right? Because I think you're looking at about twenty two percent right now for the Canada Health Transfer. That's the federal share? That's the federal share, yeah. Is there anything notable about the ongoing negotiations between the provinces and the federal government? I know they're going head-to-head right now. Um, How is their relationship changing? What are they asking for? Uh, Could you unpack that for us? I think the main thing to note about this is that now the federal government is demanding more value for money and and accountability off the Canada health transfer. And so we, we've had periods of time, as I mentioned in the past, where there's been, like, let's say, the Kirby Accord from 2004 to 2014. They pumped tens of billions of dollars into um, the provincial health system across the country. And a lot of that money was just kind of given to buy transformation. That's literally what they, they said. It was, we're going to buy change. Um, and then when the post-Kirby analysis happened and they looked back at it, like, well, we didn't really make a dent in our 
wait times or wait lists, even like the stuff that we targeted, like cataract surgeries and hips and knees and some of those high priority, but kind of routine surgeries that we wanted to decrease wait lists on didn't really, that didn't really materialize. And so I think what's notable about the current round of provincial federal negotiations over the health transfer is that the federal government wants certain conditions to be met. Um, and in particular, they wanted data sharing from the provinces, which was, uh, I'm sure uh, you guys might have heard about the, about the provinces walking away some weeks ago because they didn't want to do the data sharing. Well, the government wants the data to be fed to the you know, Canadian Institutes of Health Information because then they can actually start tracking some of these things. Like, what are your wait lists like? What are your perhaps even complication rates like in hospitals? Like, we don't actually do that, which I think for the average Canadian might be a little bit astonishing considering that other countries do do that. It's wild, right? Yeah, so we don't really do that. And so forget about like, intra-provincially. We're not doing that interprovincially either. So it's interesting how we don't track that data. And I know the Britain's NHS does. Like they I think they have like month to month data on mm-hmm. on on all these things. And so maybe that's one benefit of having a more nationalized system. Uh why don't we have a nationalized system? Why was it decided that healthcare would get rolled out on a province to province basis? Yeah, I, I wish I could um ask uh, Pearson that question. I think there's probably, and and I'm certainly not like a constitutional scholar or um, a political scientist, but I think there was this historical consensus um, that healthcare would be delivered by the provinces. From my understanding, I mean, generally people will say the constitution says that provinces are responsible for for healthcare. Um, But from my understanding, that's not like completely accurate. But I think just... Mm based off the way we've done things, we ended up saying provinces would do it, which in a country as large as ours, like fair enough, like we do have to have some degree of regionalization. Um, so, so the provinces are responsible for healthcare delivery and generally for funding as well. But then, you know, you can kind of get into all sorts of other stuff that the federal government's responsible for, um, such as pandemic responses and, uh, public health policy, et cetera. So why don't we get into some of the common problems that people are experiencing with their interactions with the healthcare system these days? And I'm curious what you're seeing as someone who works inside the system. What would you say have become the most acute problems? So I think um, really it can come down to wait times for key services. And secondly, lack of primary care. I think those two issues are part of the same, like the flip side of the same coin and they revolve around each other. And that's, I think, what a lot of us are, are seeing and feeling. And um, definitely, I mean, as, as uh, you said, as someone who works in the system, I actually work once a week at the ICU at the Vancouver General Hospital, but then I also do primary care in the community. Um, so I'm able to kind of see that... Um, how things are like in the hospital, how things are like in the eMERGE, um, and then also a sense of like what's happening in the community. And yeah, it's it's really the the wait times for many services have increased. Um, some of this was pre-pandemic and we always, you know, had longer wait times for 
things like MRIs and even some of the elective surgeries. Um, and then we had a huge shutdown during the pandemic that created a backlog. And just even catching up with that is, is going to be a substantial issue. Um, secondly, then uh, there has been a record number of retirements of family doctors. Lots of people are unattached. Very different situation in BC, which we can get into, but um, even in Ontario, where there was pretty decent attachment to to primary care, and by attachment I mean like people actually had a family doctor that they were essentially seeing, um, like longitudinally, uh, year after year. Um, that that's also been been a huge issue, and to me, like that is, I think, a harbinger of of future badness is that. If you don't have a family doctor, then you don't have a quarterback in the system. Mm. And for a lot of us, like, you know, like it's incredibly hard to understand all the different services, like, let alone like understand like our particular health condition and who do we go to and who's actually good, like who's, you know, a good specialist or who actually is even a specialist that specializes in maybe the particular thing that you have. Um, so you really need that quarterback. And so I think that the uh, challenges in primary care are going to just put more and more and more pressure on the rest of the system, including the specialized hospital systems. Is that shortage of family doctors driven by the retirements that you mentioned, or are there other systemic causes that are driving that? All right, let's get into it. There's, yeah, there's, um, so there's really good analysis that happens on this um, at St. Mike's where, where I trained. Uh, my family medicine training at St. Michael's Hospital in downtown Toronto. And a lot of the primary care research in Ontario and across the country happens there. Um, so recently, uh, Rick Glazer, who is a family physician, and um, I think the head of one of the CIHR um, primary care institutes, uh, gave a talk showing their modeling, which is which is, I think, basically saying that six to 10 million Canadians won't have a family doctor within six to 10 years. And and so that's generally the range. So we're expecting about a third of Canadians, about 10 million people not to have a family doctor. Um, That is driven by retirements, number one. Um, So from the supply side, we're not just producing enough doctors to meet those who are leaving the system. Um, Number two, um, it is driven by um also just like population growth so per capita right like we're we're expecting to add let's say 500,000 immigrants per year over the next 2 years that's what Trudeau's and Sean Fraser's target has been um we're definitely not producing enough to meet that um then second uh, thirdly um you know this is going to sound kind of like an old person thing to say but like millennial doctors are like just like we're just, I'm a millennial. So we're just not want, willing to work 90 hour work weeks, like the older generation. Um, probably for the better. You, really? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I think generally a healthier thing to, to do, but we're, we want flexible work weeks. Like people generally want to work four days a week. They don't want to be doing seven days a week of family medicine. And even in family medicine, um, we want a lot of variety. So we don't just want to sit in a clinic and see 70 people, from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m., right? Like people want to go do some emergency room shifts or deliver some babies. Like there's a real variety that I think the younger generation of doctors is craving, which actually 
you know, one of the things I tell residents is like variety or variability is viability. Like the more interest you have in your career, then you can actually, um, actually sustain your career. So I'd say those, those three reasons or explanations probably mixed together to, to cause some of the problems. Um, the other thing is that when we do per capita comparisons of the number of family physicians or, or providers, because we should include nurse practitioners in, in the mix, um, to other cu- countries, the numbers are actually artificially inflated. And, and the reason for that is, let's say you look at the example of some European countries like the Netherlands or um, the UK. Generally, if you're defined as a family doctor, that's all you're doing. You're just doing family medicine in a clinic. But in Canada, obviously, we our family doctors do a lot of other things. They go pick up shifts in the emergency room, as I said, or they do some obstetrics and they deliver babies, or they might even work for the government. So actually, the number, and once again, this is based off... Um, uh, Blazer's analysis is probably about 60% of what we actually think the per capita number is. Oh, really? Of, of family physicians. Yeah. So, so really we already have an undersupply um, compared to European countries and, and we're not going to catch up. Like really what the folks at CMX are saying is we need to double the production of family doctors per year for the next five years, which in and of itself is already like, I don't know how we're going to do that because there's a lag time to producing doctors. Like you actually have to, you know, like for example, I did four years of an undergrad then I did four years of med school and I did two year family medicine residency. That's 10 years. So, so the lag time to get someone out is also substantial. Um, and it's going to require a lot of time to catch up as more and more people retire and as our population increases and et cetera, et cetera. So how can we go about finding a solution if the measures aren't totally accurate, the measures around the actual number of healthcare professionals in the labor force, the productivity measures, like how do we, how do we solve for that first? So I think a key pillar to that would be a pan-Canadian health human resources strategy. And I feel like this is one of those things where like every six years it's like resurfaces and like there's a whole bunch of parliamentary committees and educated professors who come and say the same thing again it's like drug shortages people have been saying the same thing for 20 years and um and i've spoken to the parliamentary committees about it as well about drug shortages in in particular and you say the same things and then six years later you have to say the same things again so that caveat i would say that basically if we had a central institute for health human resource planning, a lot of these problems would be solvable. And there is actually a comparative example in New Zealand. I mean, arguably a small island country, right? But they actually um, have a central health human resources planning institute. And very straightforward, they have demographers, they have economists, they have all the folks involved in the process, right? You have your medical schools and your um, hospitals and et cetera. And then they basically say, okay, we're expecting our population to grow by X percentage year after year. The proportion of people who are over 65 will go up by this much. We should probably cut the number of like practically like cut the number of pediatric residencies and increase the number of geriatric fellowships and residencies, right? Like that's, that's the kind of level at which they're able to actually direct the sort of 
production of specialties and, and, and people in the system. And we don't do that. We don't even come close to that. There seems to be a string of encouraging news coming at both kind of the provincial and federal levers, levels, right? It seems like there's some movement happening with respect to, you know, the federal government saying that they're going to, you know, make it easier for foreign trained doctors to come and practice at the provincial levels. You're seeing, you know, increases in, in funding and you're seeing that, you know, the Ontario government is planning to make it, you know, easier for doctors to practice kind of interprovincially. Are those developments encouraging to you and, and your colleagues? Yeah. So I think they're all short-term solutions and they may help with reallocation of um, professionals and, and healthcare workers around the country, which I think generally will be good. Um, we can touch on national licensure in just a sec, but like maybe if we just bring in a lot of foreign trained nurses and physicians, we'll also, I think, make life a little bit more difficult for the countries that they're coming from that train them. So I don't know how equitable it is, but um, I think that would be a short-term solution. And I know they're aggressively trying to work on on beefing up the labor market that way, as we are with many other uh, fields um, and industries that don't have workers. I think at the same time, we don't have any kind of rationality or rationalization of what our needs are and what our projected needs are. There's a lot of different committees and, um, once again, like research institutes that do these kinds of things. Um, there's even a sort of a steering committee that the government runs. Um, but the question is, is what kind of authority and accountability do they have? Um, and I'll give you a good example, like, cause I think it's, it's useful to be quite practical about this. So I, I was recently chatting with, um, with uh, a member of parliament about this. I was like, you know, how do you know how, let's say a university medical school decides the number of orthopedic surgeons that they're going to train per year. We didn't have a clue. <laughs> so ge generally speaking, um, and I, I, I'd be happy to have someone correct me about this, but it's, it's not based off what the population needs are. They recently have been perhaps guided by the ministry where they're like, hey, just so you're aware, southwestern Ontario population is going to increase by this much. But I would argue that more generally, it's like we need to fill our call shift year after year with this many people, right? What do you mean and by that? So it's like we need five people per year because then that's a five-year residency. There's 25 you know, junior doctors or resident physicians being trained mm. and to help staff our, our hospitals. And um, there isn't that rationality or that direct link to population health. So the universities are being encouraged to start thinking about that and what the needs are. Of, of their region, but like there's so many universities that are medical schools and like maybe you have Western and Southwestern Ontario, but then you have all these other medical schools across, across the province. Like how do they know? And like, just because a orthopedic surgeon is trained in London, Ontario, doesn't mean that they're going to stay there. Right. They're good. They might even end up like all the way in the Yukon. Like how do, how does anyone know what to plan? And so this is what's frustrating is I literally wrote a paper about this 10 years ago and it was using citations from 10 years before that. So it's also already been 20 years that we've been talking about a like health human resources institute that would actually be able to say, hi, Western University Medical School, the population is going to increase in your region by this much. You should probably train this many people. We're going to let the University of Toronto train this many people. Cool? Cool. But it doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. And you end up in these weird positions where... 
we have had an oversupply of orthopedic surgeons in the country. So up until I was finishing my residency, I mean, it's already been, you know, four years, but um, there were, there were like orthopedic residents who were doing fellowships after fellowships because they couldn't get jobs. They couldn't find the operating room capacity um, to take them on. And, you know, like it just, we, we don't have a rational system. And then there's other specialties where they perhaps want to restrict the supply and it's almost like sort of guild-like behavior, but I'm thinking about uh, dermatologists, right? Like for a long time, this might have changed recently um, since I've moved, but there wasn't a dermatologist in southwestern Ontario, really. And the only training program was in the University of Toronto. So that's what I mean. Like, I think I hope you're getting a sense of like, we're just kind of like blindly fumbling towards producing the right mix of people. And then we don't even think about it holistically because are we thinking about nurse practitioners and physician assistants and family doctors with their like actual tremendous scope? Like when I did rural medicine, which I did for a few years before moving to Vancouver, I was doing everything. I was in the hospital. I was in the eMERGE. I was seeing patients in clinic. um, And there's no kind of rationalization or planning around that. I have like a million follow-up questions around that, but just would you say that there's a a labor shortage in healthcare or is there really no shortage at all and there's just a mismatch of what people are being trained for and the jobs that are required by the users of the healthcare system, uh, but overall, maybe there is enough people in the space, uh, they're just not doing the right things? There's definitely a shortage but there's also a mismatch and um, and it's hard, right? Like we're not a country that does central economic planning. So I can't necessarily like force people to become a certain kind of thing, but there are other mechanisms whereby the government can essentially direct people. You don't necessarily have to just like say you're going to become a family doctor as soon as you enter med school, but like, you know, we have residency positions. So it's not like I can just decide to become a plastic surgeon, for example. Like there might only be a set number of positions across the entire country and those can be quite competitive and then I have to get into them. So we can either choose to open up more residency positions or actually decrease residency positions um, to find that right supply of of physicians. And and once again, I, I keep saying physicians as well, but like nurse practitioners and physician assistants. I think those those kinds of professionals are, are also part of the right mix. And really, we don't, once again, think about it rationally. One more quick follow-up on that. How much, how much do the licensing rules that various, like you mentioned the dermatologists guild, essentially, how much do their professional... You're not going to be happy I said that. How much? Do, <laughs> sorry to all the dermatologists who listen. How much do their professional yeah. licensing rules um, influence this problem? Yeah. So in Canada, we have two um, authorities. Um, so we have the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons, and then we have the Canadian um, College of Family Physicians (CCFP). So those are the folks who, like, let's say, when I finished my two-year residency, I wrote an exam. And then I was officially certified as a family doctor. Um, so that's the certification. Now, when it comes to licensing, that's actually by province because the provinces, as we spoke earlier, are responsible for healthcare, and that's their jurisdiction historically. And um, and so the 
licensing is then the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, let's say, for example, or like a BC. So this is where there's like a whole alphabet soup of like different agencies. Um, but generally speaking, like to certify that I am like not going to kill people as a family doctor, I had to write an exam and that's the CCFP or College of Family Physicians. Um, and then let's say my friends who are doing five-year residencies, because let's say you're trying to become a ear, nose, throat surgeon. Um, that's a, that's a longer residency, just requires a little bit more training. So that's five years. And then they end up with the Royal College of um, uh, Physicians and Surgeons. And so um, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily restrictive per se, because um, their job is purely to make sure that you're competent and capable to do your job. I'd say probably the restrictions are on the actual spots for the residencies in the first place. Um, and then some of the licensing bodies, like when I actually try to apply in a province to be able to work there, like there can be substantial delays. And that's, that's I think, we had touched on something called national licensure earlier. And I said that we, we should put a pin in it. Like that I think is going to happen. I think it's such a low hanging fruit that like any federal government in power right now would like, it's like an easy win for them and everyone's clamoring for it. Everyone's pushing for it because it is kind of insane. Like when I moved to BC, it took seven months to get my license to practice in BC. And like every night I, you know, on TV, you'd have the people like, we have a healthcare crisis. We need doctors. And then I'm like, okay, well I'm flying back to Ontario literally to work. Um, my wife got a job at, at UBC as a professor. So that's, that's why we made the move. But yeah, like it was crazy. I was, born and raised in Ontario, trained in Ontario, did my residency in Ontario, and it just took seven months. And it's pretty unacceptable to me. Um, But then the thing is like, you know, these colleges that issue the license to work, who's kind of holding them accountable for service standards and stuff like that? Like the way they're actually funded is by my fees. So like when I pay X thousand dollars per year for my like license or, you know, X thousand dollars to even apply for a license, that's essentially how they fund their operations. Hmm. Is privatization to some degree, like selective privatization, like the Ontario government has announced plans to roll out uh, to some level? Is it a short term solution to clearing backlogs that have kind of stacked up during the pandemic? There is almost 20 years of research and health policy analysis that have shown that this kind of, like this model what Ford is pursuing, which is um, for-profit private provision of certain kinds of surgeries in, in these kind of outpatient clinics, right? Um, so so just to be clear, basically what, what Ford is doing is saying, we're going to route cataract surgeries um, hips and knees, maybe a couple of other things, but those are those are the three big ones. Um, through these private operating suites that are outside of hospitals, and these might be owned by like private equity or like built by private equity, and they're for profit, right? And as as we said earlier, generally speaking, there's actually pr- already private provision across Canada. It's just we have non for profit hospitals, and then we have family doctors who run their own clinics, but that's how they're kind of paid. Um, and that's how they keep the lights on and stuff like that at home. So that's, that's a little bit different than what Ford is proposing, which is that in essence, this is for profit. 
Um, and, and so that's, that's really important to, to keep in mind because this has already been tried in other, other jurisdictions. So they did, they tried this in the UK, um, with something called the Inter- independent sector treatment centers, ISTCs. Um, and they tried to route elective surgeries exactly like we did through them. And, and the idea as well, will unleash like the creative potential of, you know, the private market and we'll bring in all this private equity funding so the government won't have to build these centers themselves. Um, and most analyses found that they didn't do anything for wait lists or wait times. So, so why did that happen? The, I'd say the primary reason is the reason that it, they won't work here in Ontario, which is staffing. So going back to the very lengthy convoluted discussion we just had about health human resources and the right mix of nurses and physicians and specialists like where are we going to get these nurses who are going to staff the operating rooms of these for-profit surgery clinics in ontario are they going to come from the hospitals which are already overburdened are they going to come from primary care which is effectively collapsing like maybe we'll be able to source some folks from like outside of canada but right like it's it's actually the demand is there, but like the, the constituent pieces of running a like outpatient surgery clinic are, are really in short supply. And so that's why you see Ford is like really saying, Oh, we'll, we'll try to accelerate um, the interprovincial transfer of nurses to try to staff these clinics, which will cause problems in other provinces. Um, we'll try to expedite foreign trained nurses. Sure. Maybe that'll work. Um but I just, I don't actually see it working. And I think there's a lot of, from like a behavioral economics perspective, a lot of issues that'll happen. So in, in the UK, their experiment with ISTCs showed that they were also doing a lot of what we call cream skimming. So this is, I think, one of the biggest issues when it comes to for-profit private healthcare. And, um, even the introduction of a, let's say a parallel private pay system, which is not what's happening in Ontario. Because he's been quite emphatic that you're paying with your OHIP card, you know, you won't be able to buy your way to the front of the line, all this other stuff, right? But the the issue is that a lot of these for profit, like how do you increase your profits? Think about it. If you're a for profit like healthcare provider, you're either gonna try to pay your employees less or you're gonna try to increase throughput. Right, which is the hope and aspiration of the people doing this is that well, maybe they'll innovate and they'll just be faster, but maybe you can increase throughput. Um, generally, quite hard to do, or you take a less complex mix of cases. So you try to do the really simple people. Let's say you know, um, like just healthier people who need knee replacements, not the really sickly people who might end up requiring hospitalization for days and weeks after. Um, and that's called cream skimming. And so that is a, a ch- tremendous challenge in terms of like um, the behavior of the private system. It happens over and over again. And we've seen that in any kind of cross comparative analysis of like systems like Australia that have experimented with a parallel private pay system. Um, so, so that is, I think, one of the concerns because like what we'll end up doing, for example, in Ontario is like, we're like, yeah, well, we can't, there's no way we can do your hip and knee and, you know, like the uh, local private equity um, surgery center, like you'll have to go to the hospital to have it done because you're 70 years old and 
um, you have all these like medical issues and you'll probably end up in hospital for a couple of weeks after. Um, and then the hospitals are like increasingly burdened with, with that. And then um, at the same time, those, those centers that are just routing all the healthy people, like I don't also know what the relationship with them and hospitals will be. Because let's say there's a complication, like who's going to take care of the complication? So this is the the other big thing is that um, to me, this just reeks of the sort of classic neoliberal thing, which is we socialize risk and privatize profit. So it's like, yeah, great. Like you can now make a profit off Canadian taxpayers or Ontario taxpayers specifically. Um, But then when there's a risk or something falls apart, we'll have to, the public will have to foot the bill. And we've seen that with for-profit long-term care. We've seen the story. Like there was um, really rigorous analysis in the CMA journal um, showing that for-profit long-term care homes had double the rates of deaths in COVID than non-profit long-term care homes. And why? Why why does that happen? Well, exactly. Like if you're trying to turn a profit, as we just said, you're going to cut corners. You're going to figure out ways to uh, sort of have lower staffing ratios and and so on and so forth. So is there a a public healthcare system that's doing it. I mean, a jurisdiction that's doing things really well, because it, it seems like the bigger countries, right. Whether it's, you know, Canada or Britain are kind of grappling with the, with the same issues. They're seeing kind of a, a public healthcare system that was kind of once a point of national pride, you know, getting kind of overrun with the problems that naturally come with, with population growth. So is, is there an example of a jurisdiction that, would be at the same, you know, size population wise as Canada that's executing uh, on delivering healthcare a little bit better, maybe. Yeah, we're, I wish. <laughs> like, I think if, and, and once again, I'm not a, a cross comparative health system scholar. Um, I'm definitely speaking from my experience and um, some of the, um, work that I've perhaps done in, in med school and, and research that I had done. And also, um, you know, as, as I'd said, I'm not speaking on behalf of Canadian Doctors for Medicare, but I am on the board for Canadian Doctors for Medicare. There's a lot of systems that do things well, um, and, and perhaps we can learn from what they do well. And, and so I think the particular challenges for Canada are our geography. Like, we're just a very, very large country. And so it's hard to have, like, a real accurate comparison, like possibly some of the Scandinavian countries where they have some of the similar climate. They also have some pretty far Northern communities with substantial indigenous populations as well. Like I think those can be some reasonable um, examples Um, and they're facing the same challenges. Like, you know, there's various ranking scales, like the Commonwealth fund does rankings and Canada's kind of near the bottom, just slightly better than the U S but like Sweden and and Norway, they're, they're also struggling with wait times. They also have tremendous challenges. And they've actually experimented with private provision or, or for-profit for provision of even surgeries without very much benefit to their wait times. The UK um, generally does quite well with primary care, historically has. A lot of people, I've met a lot of British doctors who've moved over to Canada. I mean, they do not pay their doctors nearly as well. And there, there was even a pretty substantial junior doctor strike some years ago. Uh, I don't know if you guys ever remember hearing about that, but it was David Cameron uh, during David Cameron's time and austerity and all that stuff. 
so it's not necessarily the perfect example because I do think that um, at some point you really got to feed the people who who are keeping your system afloat. Um, but they do a really good job with with primary care and with research and with a proper integration of their health records and data systems and stuff like that. And and there's some real innovation there. And and even things like I think I'll give you an example of my wife who who has type one diabetes. She um, did not have to pay for any prescriptions because she has a chronic condition in the NHS. She could see her doctor quite regularly. She could even leave reviews with the NHS if she felt that there was something that was being done that was kind of paternalistic or like off-putting or ableist. She, Whenever she had her endocrinologist appointments, the family doctor would be there with her, like it was a virtual appointment. So they were experimenting with virtual care well before it kind of became in vogue. Um, and then the family doctor would be responsible for actually translating everything the specialist was saying to her and be like, yeah, okay, I'll write this insulin prescription. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have an insulin pump, so we'll, we'll, we'll sort that out and so on and so forth. So, so I think her experience, um, what generally speaks to, I think, what the research shows is that they, they do primary care extremely well. And I, and I would hope that we adopt some elements there because as I was saying earlier, we talked about, um, how it's you have fee for service in Canada, and that is a model that is, I, I hope, on its way to dying. I really do, and I'm just, I'm going to be a little bit because I know a lot of my friends perhaps do fee for service medicine. I just don't see it being an appealing thing for for our generation. If you talk to millennial physicians, people want flexibility in what they do. They want team-based care. Like They don't want to be responsible for running their own small business. They so want to be responsible for the medicine. It's hard enough as is to keep up with the like just volume of medical knowledge and studies and with the complexity and, and the boomers retiring. And just there's so many things that we have to do. Like, why would I want to run a small business? Right. And so we had touched on capitation um, as a possible solution. So in capitation models, you are paid per head. That's where capitation comes from. So like, let's say I'm Dr. Ahmed. I open up a clinic. I say, I'm going to take on a thousand people in this community. The government would be like, okay, I'll pay you two or 300 bucks per person. So you'll make two, $300,000 a year. And, um, and as such, then, uh, then perhaps it would give it a different incentive structure. Right. So instead of like maximizing throughput and just doing one issue per visit, I might be like, okay, you know, Mrs. Johnson, like, I know you're 80 years old and you're on 10 different medications. Like, why don't you come in? We'll spend 45 minutes. Maybe I'll even do a house call, right? Like, and and that's fine because I know I'm paid a certain amount per year. And my job is to actually optimize the population health of these 1,000 people. Hmm. Now, Ontario experimented with that. Didn't work out as well because there was a bunch of people who signed up 1,000, like, 18-year-olds <laughs> or uh, effectively Taylor Scollins, and uh, they were just the sprightly and health. health. Yeah, the <laughs> pinnacle of health. They were just sprightly and young and never needed to see them. And then they never need, like, you know, and so then so then they had to kind of go back and be like, okay, how do we create more accountability in, in the structure? But I do really think the family health team model, as it's envisioned, is is the way to go. And, and it is in keeping with the research and the comparisons from, places like the NHS and across the world. So so that's a very long-winded answer to answer like what we should do in primary care. Our hospital system actually, I would argue, is like pretty damn efficient. Like 
we do a lot with very little. So people have been talking a lot about how Canada has the lowest per capita number of beds. Um, that's totally true. We definitely need more beds. Um, and then, of course, you can't just be like Doug Ford and like take pictures beside beds that don't have any nurses beside them. I don't know if you guys remember that, where they were opening up new beds in the middle of, of, of COVID. And I was like, okay, well, where are your nurses? Or are you just going to ask nurses to like have unsafe staffing ratios? Right. I guess the beds are kind of the easy part, right? Yeah, the beds are easy. <laughs> like you have to you have to train like the doctors and the nurses and and all the other all the other people, right? Healthcare is a very resource intensive people intensive industry. And um, so we, we like operate nearly 90 plus percent capacity. And then it gets always terrible universally during every flu season. Forget before, like this is before COVID we'd be at like 110% capacity. You'd be getting like faxes um, from like, you know, your regional health sciences center being like, please be careful about admitting people to us because we're like 110% capacity and like, okay, well, I guess we won't be able to transfer people for days. Um, so that's the situation. And then COVID happened and then we just got old, right? Like now we have like the flu, we have RSV, we have COVID, every hospital's in surge capacity. So we definitely need more beds. But, you know, generally speaking, like we're very efficient uh, in our hospital system. It's interesting because as we talk through this, it <clears throat> becomes, it seems clear that incentives are such a big part of um, how the system is structured from how students kind of make their way through um, medical school to then, you know, how you function in, you know, either a hospital or, or, or a clinical environment. So you would think that there would be like a, a, a body of, of economists that would be, you know, up there kind of analyzing, you know, what needs to happen, what those levers are, what those mechanisms are from the top down. But I, I guess to follow up on that piece, there isn't really something like that that exists right now or is that the function of the steering committee that you mentioned well it's it's ostensibly the purpose of that steering committee but they don't have the stick to enforce that so i and this is what i think you know one of the first questions you asked sarah was about how is that relationship between the provinces and, and the federal government changing i think we're going to start seeing a lot more so far it's been a lot of carrots right? Like here, we're going to buy change. We're going to give you tens of billions of dollars from 2004 to 2014. Um, and then if change doesn't materialize, we're like, okay, I guess let's just do the same thing again. I think now we're starting to see the federal government demand some accountability and, and data on how that money is being spent and, and actually um, value value for, for funding, right? Um, so um, I could anticipate that we're heading towards the future where that kind of more central committee or institute could really inform funding decisions. And like, we could actually be like, Hey, you need to like double the number of family doctors or we're going to, we're going to withhold funding because the Canada health transfer, like it's still 22%. That's not insubstantial. And it's, it's, it's technically under the federal government's mandate. Like they can, they already do find provinces that don't follow the precepts of Canadian Medicare so if you allow private billing or if there's certain things that violate the, the principles of, of our Medicare Act, like you can actually find the provinces and they have in the past. Um, but they haven't been as aggressive about quality and how the provinces are actually delivering the healthcare, like the quality of that care. So you could feasibly see that as an evolution. Um, I think the first step, which has already been controversial, is just demanding data. 
So hopefully we get to that. I know. I know we're at time here, but uh, I did want to end off and, and maybe asking, I mean, what's your short-term view as far as what's going to happen? You know, I mentioned the string of news that seems to be encouraging, at least in the sense of that it indicates that, you know, our leaders at the provincial and federal level are thinking about this and, and, and taking it seriously and kind of making moves. But I mean, what is your view as far as how um, this is going to shake out in the next couple of, of years? Do you feel optimistic? Not so? I'm a generally optimistic person, um, but I don't really see how we're going to deal with the absolute shortage of people. There's so many pressures, right? Like growing population pressures, um, immigration rates, uh, targets set by the federal government. We don't have enough workers to keep up with that in the healthcare system. So I don't like, I know this sounds kind of depressing. I just see us limping our way to an eventual solution at some point. But I think the next five to 10 years are going to be really bumpy. And, you know, there's opportunity in any crisis um, to reimagine things and to really ask some hard questions. But that, that's what I really do see happening. Okay, well, I think that is a, maybe not a good place to leave it, but an appropriate place <laughs> to leave it uh, with a, a cold Sorry. splash of reality. <laughs> no, you know, that's why, we, that's why we have people like you on, Saad, who, who know what they're talking about, because a lot of these problems are very difficult to, to address. Um, and it's better that we have a realistic grasp on the situation rather than just sort of pretending like things will, will work themselves out in the end. So Saad, thank you for your time and for uh, sharing all that knowledge with us. That was, that was a great chat. Uh, I feel like we could continue this conversation for like 10 more hours because I have so many follow-up questions based on that, but we'll have to have you back on down the road, maybe after the uh, federal provincial agreement happens to get your take on that as well. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to. Thanks so much for having me. Well, you know, that was uh, an interesting conversation. It reminded me a lot of our episode with Mike Moffat about housing in the sense that there's a real shortage issue here uh, and a lack of planning and coordination. Like that seems to be a, a running theme and pattern um, when it comes to some of the bigger problems that we have in Canada and, you know, different parts of our economy. Uh, is a shortage of some key input, whether it's labor in the healthcare system or housing in the housing market, and then just a total lack of coordination or planning amongst the the different institutions that are supposed to be responsible for uh, delivering this stuff. So I, it was interesting to see those parallels. I suspect uh, it won't be the last time that this comes up in a free lunch interview. Yeah, well, one unfortunate similarity was also the lack of any clear runway as far as the solution would oh, come yeah. about, right? You're just kind of testing ideas and see what would work. And it all feels quite grim. But it's interesting because when you look at it globally, I mean, like the same problems that are plaguing this system are present elsewhere, right? Like we talked about the NHS quite a bit, but it's like in the last couple of months, their system has also started to, um, you know, I think particularly with wait times for which they have better data th than we have and can respond to those issues, I guess, a bit quicker. But their wait times 
are up. They, you know, have better access to family physicians, but it seems like any, you know, first world country that's experiencing growth is inevitably going to have to face the same problem. And we're all kind of grappling with it all at once. Yeah. And the, you know, it's not just, uh, healthcare and housing either, where we're seeing these, these issues with trying to keep up with a growing population and just not having enough stuff, right? Like there's, and we saw this during the pandemic and, and, and continuing, uh, till today with issues with supply chains, with not enough of certain commodities driving up prices. And that's a big part of the inflation story. And there not being any sort of clear way to solve these issues other than, I guess, just waiting for things to work themselves out. Like Saad was saying, you know, to become a, a family doctor, that's 10 years of training, right? So even if we start today, uh, barring any like massive influx of foreign trained healthcare providers, just training people here going through our education system, that's a 10 year lead time, right? And it's the same story in housing, construction on new housing. That's a multi-year endeavor. It's years just to get through the planning process sometimes. So, well, fundamentally it is like a, it's a problem that comes down to like Saad mentioned, like the behavioral economics of it, right? Too. It's like placing the incentives in the right places, right? I mean, assuming you have that 10 year lead time for which you can kind of plan and, and allocate doctors appropriately. It's like, that's what's fascinating about this conversation too, is like starting to dive into like, okay, what are those mechanisms or like, how do you, you know, take a, you know, medical student and kind of guide them on a path that takes them, you know, towards a, um, a profession that has been, you know, identified to be, um, you know, in, in great need, like whether it's like assigning, you know, a certain amount of dermatologists to a certain, uh, area or cardiologists maybe to another. I mean, that piece is interesting and it'll be neat to see how that unfolds. Yeah. I did like the idea of having, uh, a doctor just responsible for, X number of people and paid on a per person basis. Like I've been, I've never been able to get a family doctor personally. And it would just be so nice to have a, like a letter in the mail that's like, this is your family doctor, uh, who's been assigned to you. And if you have a problem, go talk to that because so, navigating the system right now is a mess. It, it's a total mess. And, and the incentives there to, if you're being recorded on the general health, if you're being measured, sorry, on the general health of that, you know, client base or patient base, I mean, the incentives to kind of mess with maybe who you let through the door also runs the risk of kind of widening the gap between who can access healthcare and who can't. So that was a question I desperately wanted to ask, and maybe we'll get the chance to do it, you know, later on, right? Is like, okay, how do you solve for, for that as the, as the systems develop, right? Okay, well, should we leave it there? I think so. This has been another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. I'm Taylor Scollin. You can find me on Twitter at Taylor Scollin. And I'm Sarah Bartnika. You can find me on Twitter at Sarah Bartnika. And make sure to subscribe to our daily business newsletter as well, The Peak. You can find that at readthepeak.com. And if you enjoyed this episode and want to get more episodes of Free Lunch, search and follow Free Lunch by the Peak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 